You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 516 for April 8th, 2020. On today's show, pianist and vocalist Brenda Earl Stokes. We are living in a very, very difficult time these days. You don't need me to tell you that. And it's affecting all of us in lots of different ways from our mental health to our physical health to uh, our financial security in my particular case where that last one is concerned, uh, because most of the freelance work I do is for musicians, I have lost most of my income because none of them have any gigs, and so there's no freelance work for me to do. I mentioned this on social media about a week or so ago and said that you know if it, you're at all able to support this show, that this is a great time to do that because uh, things are you know a little bit desperate on our end, as they often are and as they are for many people. So uh, we're not pleading any kind of special case here or anything. But if you can support the show, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. And I want to thank the people who have stepped up since I made that call. Uh, Arthur Kawa, David Smith, Peter DeBacker, Ron, no last name, and uh, Rich Nichols have all become members. Also, uh, Jason Linnell doubled his membership, uh, which is amazing. So if you think you could see your way to becoming a member of the Jazz Session, you can do it at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are uh, two different membership levels, 5 or $10 a month. And if that seems like that's not very much money to you, uh, that would be amazing because it means a lot to me. So if you can do it, do it. Thanks very much. Brenda Earl Stokes has a new record out that's called Solo Sessions Volume 1. Stokes, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. And uh, because I've already said this publicly in my newsletter, I will just mention it here on the show, that this is actually our second run at doing this. We did an entire interview. Uh, it was lovely. I think we were both happy with it. And I uh, hung up and opened the file to produce the show, and it was only my voice. And so, uh, you know, as fascinating as I think I am, I don't think that's enough to sustain a show. So we decided to uh, <laughs> take another run at it. And hopefully you'll be in this one, which seems to me more the point. So uh, good Maybe, luck to both yeah. of us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
so we're going to talk about a bunch of things, but uh, one of the things I want to talk about, uh, and the first one, is Solo Sessions Volume 1, which is an album of exactly what it sounds like, you playing the piano and singing with no other band members. And the backstory of this is incredibly interesting because you didn't have any intention of recording a solo album. Will you say more about that? Yeah, I uh, I recently reconnected uh, last year with uh, an old friend of mine from high school who I'm, I'm from a, a relatively small city in, in Ontario, Canada called Sarnia. And he reached out to me and, and uh, he is apparently, his name is Adam Miner, and he was starting to do a lot of work as an engineer and he had just recorded a project of our old high school band teacher, Mr. Nichols. Uh, and he had recorded at the recital space of the Sarnia Public Library on this beautiful Steinway piano. And he just reached out to me and said, you know, if you're ever in Sarnia and want to do some recording, I could bring my rig in and we could work something out. And it just so happened that I was planning to come to town the following month to uh, with my son to visit my dad. And I, he said, let's book a day and see what happens. Um, so I, I had a few weeks to, you know, practice and think about it a little bit, but we kind of had, I was sort of thinking I would do it as a demo, um, just to get maybe a little EP out of it. And, and at the end of four hours, we had recorded multiple takes of 11 songs and we kind of looked at each other and said like, oh, I guess we just recorded an album. <laughs> and you recorded this album, you know, as you mentioned in your hometown and, it, but not just in your hometown, but in particular in a space that you were intimately familiar with, right? Yeah, the, the Sarnia Public Library um, is in downtown Sarnia, and they have this really lovely recital space on the second floor, and that was home to most of my piano lessons, uh, piano recitals when I was a kid, um, music festivals, Royal Conservatory Music Exams, um, all of my ballet recitals were there, so it was a place that I knew intimately. Um, I mean, I, I the Lansing County Music Festival happened every year, and I'd be playing that piano like five or six times every every festival. So, you know, that was the piano that I have a real relationship with, and um, I actually have a photo of myself playing it when I was five years old. Um, so it's it's sort of a magical place for me, and I, I think because I was in this familiar space, I was able to. Um, really kind of let go and, and be in the moment because it, I felt like I was in my living room. You're a weaver of dreams You with your strange fascination You're a weaver of dreams You with your come-hither smile Just to hear As a baby in arms, poor little baby in arms, helpless to all of your charms. You're a weaver of dreams, you and your lips, warm and tender, just like heaven it seems. You're thrilling, enchanting me too. And kudos to a public library for having a Steinway Grand and a recital space. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool. There's a, there's some pretty amazing history uh, there that that you know a group of people, including my ballet teacher um, Anita Hobbs, who was very involved in the cultural scene. I think they bought the piano somewhere between 1969 and 1971, and they did a huge fundraising thing. And the, the joke for amongst the older community was like 
oh, I I own the the middle C key, you know, because they had donated a certain <laughs> amount of certain amount of money, and so it was it was something that the whole um, you know the whole city got together and and purchased this piano and. They've really maintained it quite meticulously over the years, and uh, it is it is really a spectacular instrument and and something that's you know pretty unusual to have access to in in a, a city that size. It often comes up on this show that jazz album recording is a pretty condensed affair, especially compared to what people you know might hear about the rock and pop world where you can spend months or years putting an album together and, you know, fixing every little thing. And, but this is even more condensed than that, than the typical jazz recording where, as you said, you just sat down, played a bunch of music and at the end of it thought, huh, that might be a record. So are we hearing, I mean, all or mostly first takes and just kind of whatever occurred to you to play? Yeah, I think the most number of takes we did, uh, I think we did, Two for most of them. I think there was a couple of songs we just did one take, and then um, "Ladies and Mercedes," which has a lot of words. There were several false, false parts, <laughs> um, and but the rest of it was was pretty much uh, done in the first or the second take. Um, and yeah, it was just it, it was really on the fly, sort of like what you would experience if you came to a you know a, a, a small concert or a performance, and it's kind of just what what came out on the day. This has, uh, and uh, I am going to make, I know I made this comment the first time we tried to do this interview, but I'm going to make it again because it, it still amazes me. This has, I believe, in recorded history, the only Dave Brubeck to Huey Lewis segue ever attempted. And it, it comes off quite nicely, but it is quite surprising when it happens, when it goes from uh, Dave's Strange Meadowlark into Huey's The Power of Love. And uh, it's not all that surprising that Strange Meadowlark might end up on the album, but The Power of Love really took me by surprise. So tell me how that got on there. Well, I, I uh, had been teaching earlier in uh, earlier last year in Australia as part of this um, vocal pedagogy seminar, and one of the things that we're asked to do is sing a piece of classical music, um, a piece of musical theater or jazz, and then to do like a pop rock thing. And um, you know, that afternoon I sat down and thought, geez, what could I do? And I, I kind of came up with this arrangement of "Power of the Love" on on the fly. Um, just very much at the last minute and kind of threw it together. And I got a real response from it. And I got a response from the audience, but I also felt an incredible kind of surge of energy because this song has, it just has so much meaning. I was such a Huey Lewis fan my entire growing up. Um, and I, I just feel like there's something about this song that is really magical. So um, the, the fun thing about doing a project like this is that I can do whatever I want, you know? It's, it's yeah. my music, it's my project, um, it's my identity, it's just me, and so um, I, I think I just kind of went for it. The power of love is a curious thing Makes one man weep, make another man sing Change a hawk to a little white dove More than a feeling that's the power of love Tougher than diamonds Sweet like cream Stronger and harder Than a bad girl's dream And make a better one good Ooh, make a wrong one right 
also, I will just say as a public service to people who are primarily jazz heads who are listening to this and, and may not spend a lot of time drifting into other genres, and I'm not sure how many of those people exist anymore, but uh, if you haven't spent a lot of time with Huey Lewis, you should. Uh, extremely underrated, I think. Um, and as I mentioned, this follows A Strange Metal Arc, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, Dave Brubeck pieces, and I actually didn't know until listening to this record that it had ever had words um, set to it. Is that something, is this a piece that you've played a lot? Oh, I actually have never, I hadn't really played it very much before I had tried it as a trio recording or trio performance a couple of times on, on shows, but there, the two recordings of it that I really love is there's a, a Carmen McRae um, album that she does with Dave Brubeck and, and she sings it. Um, and then there's another album that Norma Winston, the British jazz singer does. It's on the, um, on a duo record she does with uh, the pianist John Taylor and between the two of them, uh, there was something very, very special about that song for me, and I, I just thought it would sound great solo piano. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's a wonderful piece of music. I, you know, like everybody, uh, I first heard it on um, Times Out, and uh, my my grandpa introduced me to it, and I'm just, it's one of those songs that immediately brings me back to childhood. And uh, my grandparents had one of those big like things that looks like a piece of furniture, but if you lift the top up, there's a record player inside and mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, used to be in all houses back in the day. And he had that album. And he also had this version, this band, the Dave Stewart Quartet, who were a band from the Berkshires, which is where we're from in Western Massachusetts, who, who did essentially almost a recreation of times out and extremely well. And so between those two albums, I mean, that's like, it's just a big part of the fabric of my childhood to hear this, this piece so i was really excited to hear it with words because i think it, it it's just so gorgeous you know it's it is it's really a beautiful piece of music A quick break just to remind you that this podcast is supported by its members. It's been going for 13 years now, and in order for it to go another 13 years or even longer, I need you. If you can see your way toward becoming a member for 5 or 10 bucks a month, I would be eternally grateful. You get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. You can become a member by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. Now back to the episode. And love in Can't you sleep, Meadowlark? Is there nothing left but whistling in the dark? So sad. Was it love, Meadowlark? Were the songs you sang last summer carefree bed? Think of all you You mentioned Norma Winston, who also figures prominently in Ladies in Mercedes, um, which is a a composition of hers and Steve Swallows. Uh, And I know that that song has some uh, particular resonance for you. So will you tell me a little about that? (laughs) Yeah, it does. Well, uh, I've been living in New York for, oh gosh, 18 years now. And and when I first moved to New York, I was living in in West Harlem, which was, you know, it's like this cool kind of gritty neighborhood. And 
um, when I met my husband, we moved to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which, I mean, I think almost everyone knows about the Upper East Side, but it's, it's quite a different place than West Harlem. And uh, a lot of very sort of upscale people pushing $2,000 drawers. And, you know, there's like a level of like hair and makeup that's going on all the time. It's kind of <laughs> not really my, <laughs> like not, not really my, my general, my usual scene. And uh, I remember uh, my favorite Sarah Jessica Parker quote from Sex and the City is where she says, I, I feel like patchouli in a room full of Chanel. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> the prophet, the prophet Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, and, and that's really how I felt, you know, coming into the neighborhood of like how, how strange is it. And so um, Norma Winston's, you know, lyric on ladies and Mercedes, uh, you know, Steve Swallow wrote an instrumental piece and called it that. And, and she used that very evocative set of lyrics to kind of it's, it's sort of the story of my life living around here so it's uh it's, it's such a fabulous piece of music talk to me about playing completely solo like you do on this record which i know you have a lot of experience doing but just uh, tell me what you like about it i'm a pianist first that's my first instrument and i have spent a lot of time accompanying singers and there is a certain amount of dialogue that you can get between yourself and somebody else when you're performing with them but the dialogue that you can have between yourself and yourself uh, is is just something that you just can't have with anybody else. And so where I might be trying to anticipate where somebody is going to go when I'm accompanying them with myself, I always know where I'm going. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, the... the <laughs> That's a very time, enlightened you know? uh, attitude. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't I mean, quite achieved that place yet. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't... I, I, it's sort of dumb to say that, but... I always have uh, that sense that when I'm kind of in the zone with myself that I know where I'm going and I know where I want things to go and there's this real energy that can, can build up with it. There's like an intuition that really kicks in. And so if I decide that something is going to change midstream or the harmony is going to change or, you know, I decide I'm going to really make a drastic shift in the vocals, those are all things that I can adjust myself. Um, so it, it really is a, is a very empowering um, situation and since I have played so much and sung so much solo um, it, it really is kind of feels like the ultimate workshop for me yeah tell us a little bit about your history as a solo performer I do, I do know that you've done a ton of it just talk a little bit about that if you would yeah so I uh, you know I, I was a pianist first and then I, I started singing and and uh, in my early 20s I, I decided it was time to get out of Dodge I'd, I'd been in Toronto and I, I wanted to find a way to kind of do something else so I sort of got myself a gig on a cruise ship as a solo bar, piano bar entertainer and uh, I had no experience I knew five pop tunes and I somehow um, convinced them that I was the you know we had years of experience and would be the perfect person to do it um, I know so there you go and uh, and so I, I went in really knowing nothing and learned um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs like over the over the couple of years that I was I was doing that and it it was really an incredible experience because one minute I'd be playing you know cocktail hour jazz standard type you know more in my wheelhouse and then in the evenings and the in the nighttime there'd be people sitting around the piano and we'd be singing Margaritaville and all this stuff and it it really helped me to develop uh a wide range of skills and interests on the piano, which I think you can hear on the record. Um, I think that harkens back to the question about Dave Brubeck and Huey Lewis. 
um, all of that kind of kind of came together in that way. And and since then, I've done you know tons and tons of club daddy type type work as a singer pianist. But I've also uh, done a lot of uh, solo concerts when I'm on tour. Several things in Australia that I've done, um, and it's something that I really really enjoy doing. I'm fascinated about showing up at the cruise ship gig with not very many songs under your fingers and having to learn a ton. How did you learn things quickly? I mean, how how did you fill up the time even? I mean, I I knew a lot of tunes. I just none of they weren't songs that anybody wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people are asking for like Barbara Streisand, and I'm I'm trying to offer them B sides off of her jazz record. You know, (laughs) right. It doesn't sell. So what I, what I did is, is as every night that went by, every time someone made a request, I would just write a, a list of what they were, and I would go back to my cabin and sit with my notebook on my lap and transcribe all the lyrics from the CD and, and copy out all the chords. I mean, it was really where my jazz training came in handy because I didn't have a keyboard in the room. Um, the Internet wasn't really something we had a lot of at that point, so I had to learn it all by ear. Wow. Um, so, you know, the, the first contract that I did, I think was 11 weeks and I learned 700 songs. Oh my um, God. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, I really am a girl scout when it comes to when someone tells me I need to do something, I'll, I'll do it very well. So, um, but again, my dad's training really helped with that. And, and it really, um, it really informed cause I had no pop music experience to that point. I was classically trained and then I was like strictly a jazz person. I was like on a diet of Bud Powell and Bill Evans, um, exclusive diet. Of- <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that really informed who I think I am as a, as an artist now, the kind of writing that I do and, and the kind of ways that I, I work with my, my band and the things that I write, I think are very much influenced by um, a much wider net than they were back then. does the I mean obviously there's some things that are as clear as you know the power of love being on this record but in ways that might be a little harder for us to hear as explicitly as that how does learning all that pop music and you know kind of all those those standards affect how you play now and how you sing now and how you write now I I think that part of what I was trying to explore on solo sessions was the landscape of what's available at the piano and so, you know, there's the Dave Frischberg thing where you can walk a bass line and you can comp, which is more of a standard jazz setup. You can play a ballad. You could play, you know, I was really trying to explore what are all of the different available sounds that I can access out of the instrument. What are the different grooves? What are the different textures orchestrationally? Like that's, that's the kind of thing that I was really, 
was really looking for. And, um, you know, developing an experience with pop music also really hit me to uh, how to interpret a lyric, how to write a lyric, um, how to how to write in a different way, more of a confessional kind of way. So I think all of those things have kind of come together. Yeah, it's interesting because of the way uh, at least the jazz that a lot of us grew up listening to came from, you know, show tunes and Tin Pan Alley music and that kind of thing that a lot of that was some of it was very dramatic, or but a lot of it was not necessarily intimate and confessional. I mean, that came from listening, yeah, like, as you say, to, to pop music. And so I like yeah. now that we're, you know, more modern writers and singers in the improvised music world these days who have come up on a different diet than, you know, just the, the standards. I really like the fact that there is more of them in those songs, and not just in the interpretation, but in the generation of the music. And I, that seems like it's true for you, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell me about uh, this uh, album does have a uh, song that you wrote uh, and a song that you wrote lyrics to. Uh, tell me about those. Yeah, so there's a song. So uh, the record has a combination of things that I have never recorded that I have um, recorded before and um, some things that I've, I had never even played before. Um, so Standing uh, is an original composition of mine that was on my um, 2009 record, Songs for a New Day. Um, and that was written at, you know, a very specific period in my life and has been kind of like my, it's all, almost always the second song that I play in a set um, because it feels like sort of an, an introduction um, to who I am. Uh, and then the other song is The Wall, which, which was written by the, the amazing vibraphonist Christian Tambor, who is from Florida originally. He's in L.A. now. Um, and we met at the Ravinia Festival as part of a young artist program, you know, about a million years ago. And he had a song that I just was so obsessed with the song. And he was very gracious enough to um, invite me to write a lyric to it. And it became this this kind of, story that I heard in the song about these two people who were very broken, um, meeting in this sort of a chance moment, waiting for an elevator, and that everything changed because of that meeting. Let me take a moment to thank the folks who make the Jazz Session possible, starting with you, the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, Dave Rabel for the logo, and Chuck Ingersoll for the voice in the intro. You can hire Chuck at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, or on Instagram at the Jazz Session. Right now I'm posting a photo every weekday from more than 20 years of jazz shows and interviews. Take a second, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because good ratings and reviews help the show move up in its categories, and that means more people can be exposed to The Jazz Session. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, my poetry, and more, subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out every two weeks. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you get this week's newsletter, for example, you'll find out that my other show, A Brief Chat, is now back, a 10-minute daily show aimed at making some kind of sense out of, you know, whatever all this is. Now back to the episode. Clouds will part and our hearts will open to strangers meet and no words are spoken. Gone are the years when nothing can be found. But it falls apart in an unexpected
and you yourself have kind of refashioned your life. Is that fair to say? I mean, you know, kind of come back from some difficult places to to find it sounds like a more centered and and kind of peaceful place. Absolutely. I mean, every day it feels like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now more than ever. yeah, exactly, exactly. We're we're in the middle of the COVID nineteen crisis, and I'm I'm right in the epicenter in New York City, so it's sort of a, a, a fun time to reflect on that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of that in my in my writing about um, you know kind of my my spiritual path and things that I've moved through, and I do um, I do sing about that, and I I am relatively open about a lot of that, and and that's definitely uh, a part of of why I make music and what I'm trying to do with this. Did has the way you make music changed in the brighter times from what it was like in the darker times? Um, I, 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 yeah, I think it has in in some ways, but I think my, my process has been, has been the same. I think now that I've, I'm older and I've been doing this long enough, I, I, I realize that my process has probably been the same for, for, through all of it. But, um, you know, I, for me, I just need to have the space to be able to make make the music. Usually, when I have the space to do it, I am able to make the music. Um, and I, I will say that I think it, writing has generally been easier for me once I'm finished processing whatever it is. Um, and that's usually when a lot of things come out. So um, this this new project that I'm working on, which is called the Motherhood Project, and it's all songs and um, music that I've written kind of about the experience of motherhood. And it's all material that I've been thinking about since my my son was a baby. He's eight now. Um, but it's taken me this long to be have sort of moved through the feelings and the experience enough to have something to report on. So, you know, maybe I guess I, I write on easier on the other side. <laughs> You know, there's that kind of old cliche about uh, nothing harms an artist's output more than becoming happy, um, and uh, which I, first of all, I don't think is true. Um, but certainly, a lot of uh, a processing pain has been a way that a lot of artists have come up, you know, with some great art. I mean, there's no there's no way to deny that from you know music to painting to sculpture to theater, uh, it, there's a lot of pain being processed in a lot of the things that we love. But I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, that people don't aren't able to write when they're happy as much as maybe it's not as desperate a need for some people once they've been able to process the the worst stuff. I, I'm just kind of speaking off the cuff here, but I don't know if any of that resonates with you at all. I mean, obviously, your, yeah. your output hasn't slowed down at all. Yeah, I, I not. I'm sort of of the mindset now that the narrative of the depressed artist is is one that is needs to go. Like I think I think we at this stage in in the world, it's a good time to let that idea because there's a, there's a certain ideal around that, and I've I've definitely seen it with my my jazz brethren too that there's there's something to you know that that there's a certain amount of suffering or there's a certain amount of you know difficulty that's supposed to happen, and I, I kind of looked at a lot of that and said, well, I don't really want to be suffering and I don't really want to be um, starving or miserable or, you know, I, I just kind of looked at it and went, you know, I, I really don't subscribe to that anymore. And I, I've seen, you know, I've been, I've been at this for 20 years and I've definitely seen a huge change um, in the jazz community of more people taking, you know, better care of themselves and, you know, uh, exercising and, 
having families and, and being engaged with their families. And so I, I'm kind of hoping that whatever that is, the darkness doesn't have to be a thing anymore. It's like something that we as a culture can kind of move past. Yeah, I think you mentioned that we're recording this uh, interview for people who might be listening to this 20 years from now, assuming there's still a world. Um, you mentioned that we're recording this in the during the, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic here in the U.S. And as I've been looking at uh, Jazz Instagram, for example, I've been really heartened by the number of people who are doing things to deal positively with mental health. And by the way that the improvised music community has really come together to like put on shows from living rooms and you know just I mean I know people are doing that kind of thing all over the world and in all different disciplines but I wonder if this uh, assuming the same technology I wonder if this had happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago that the response would have been the same I I feel like you that we have taken some pretty big strides in getting past this idea that you know, how we're functioning internally doesn't matter as long as we're making music. I think people are starting to realize, especially when I look at the, you know, the 20 something musicians who are out there that, you know, that that doesn't cut it anymore, that it, it, you, you need to have a more fulfilling and rounded life than I'm just playing gigs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this this is the kind of thing that nobody has experienced in you know, the COVID-19 thing. We haven't really experienced in, in this part of the world anyway since, you know, 1918. So there's not too many people around who remember it very well. It's, it's uncharted territory. And although obviously, you know, things are burning around us and it's, it's really horrible, I, I'm in a fortunate place that I'm not working in a hospital, that nobody in my family is sick. Like, we're, I'm, I'm from a great place of privilege in that I still have a place to live. And I've taken this time as an opportunity to take a break and press pause um, and just allow myself to be a human in the world instead of having to be a musician or having to output anything. Like for me, the first thing that I was willing to kind of let go of right now is the need to be musical um, or the, the feeling of force that I have to do it. I've, I've kind of more managed it by pressing pause on it and just giving myself permission to have a breath, um, which for me has been a huge um, help. And you're also, as you mentioned, at home with a, a young child, an eight-year-old son. And what's your, what do you, to whatever degree you want to tell me, what what do your days look like these days? Well, my, you know, my, my eight-year-old is home. Um, we're lucky that we're on the second floor. We live in a high-rise building. We're on the second floor, so it's easy for us to, to dip out as we need to because we don't have to take an elevator or anything. And so, you know, my days really revolve around him and keeping him comfortable and, and keeping things moving. So, you know, we get up at six and, um, he, you know, we get all ready for the day and at eight o'clock, um, he's sitting at the piano and he has his piano lesson with me. (laughs) Um, that's like something we've been doing for years together. Um, and you know, we do schoolwork and then we try to get to central park for an hour or two in the morning. And, you know, I teach a few students and we play Legos and we read together and, you know, we do crafts and I'm teaching him how to cook and he's doing his own laundry. And, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of doing all the things that I feel like we could be doing to make this a peaceful place um, and a productive place so that we can just feel kind of taken care of. And you were already teaching students long distance, right? You were kind of already set up for this situation. 
Yeah, I, I've I've been very active in in education ever since I finished grad graduated from Manhattan School of Music in 2004, and and so I've always been very much a teacher. I've taught early childhood. I've I've run um, seniors sing along programs. Um, I've been a cor- classical choral conductor. I mean, you name it. I've I've done a lot in education, and over the last um, five or ten, I guess probably more like ten years, I I have had a huge teaching practice, and. Uh, I even have an online course that I've, I've had for the last couple of years called Piano Skills for Singers, which is all video lessons um, and a downloadable curriculum. And and I've also had students like in Australia and Western Canada and Texas. So, you know, I've been very fortunate through this crisis that it hasn't affected my work life very much because I've, you know, I've retained all of my students and, and I'm kind of still teaching as normal. To whatever you know degree you want to paint a picture, will you tell us just what it's like to be in New York right now? Well, it's a very surreal time to be in New York. Actually, as we're doing this, um, they're doing the cheer at 7 o'clock every night. Everybody in New York City um, does the cheer. Let me see if you can hear it through the speaker. Can you hear everybody honking the horn? Yeah. Yeah. So every night at 7 o'clock, everybody leans out their window and screams and cheers for all the medical people who are doing the shift change. Oh, that's great. Um, people honk the horns, people cheer, people are like pounding on drums and dishes. And I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Um, we have four of my husband's family members are in healthcare, So they're all telling us what it's like on the front lines. And it's pretty, it's pretty scary. Anybody who's wondering if this is real, it is real. It is very real. Um, a lot of people in our neighborhood, all the fancy people have gone up to the Hamptons. So it's pretty quiet around here. But you know, there's definitely sort of a, a feeling of, of sadness around here. Um, and just, we're sort of just waiting, you know, we're kind of waiting for the bus right now. It was so right, it was so wrong. Almost at the same time. Pain and pain. can take no one really knows when the memories cling and keep you there do you know How have you been talking with your son about this? Oh, we tell him everything. I, we're very, we're very honest with him. He's, he's a really, he's a really smart kid, and he's, he's a really, um, you know, he's very mature for his age. But we watch the news every morning. We watch um, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is on at eleven o'clock every day, and we watch a little bit with him, and, and he understands what's going on. And um, you know, we just talk about being patient and being grateful and, and, you know, trying to take this as an opportunity for um, us to connect. And I keep saying to him, even though we're going to look back at this and realize that this was like the worst, probably the worst time um, for the country and for the world, like for us as a family, this is the best time because we got to spend all this time together. So, um, you know, that's kind of how we're spending it. You mentioned the upcoming project that's based around ideas of motherhood. 
has this uh, whole situation thrown that off at all in terms of release date or recording dates or anything like that, or was that already oh, far enough in the future? It's all it's all thrown off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was uh, I was meant to be recording a trio record too. I, I have this trio record with um, trio project with Evan Greger, uh, the bass player, and Ross Peterson, the drummer, and we were talking about recording um, later this spring, and so that's on hold indefinitely. Uh, but the Motherhood Project is a, is a larger project, and, and it was probably going to be recorded in the fall. But I mean, at, at the rate things are going, who knows what's going to what's going to happen? What, what's funny? One of the songs um, from the Motherhood Project is called Sharp Edges, and it's a, a nine-minute-long spoken word piece all about that lists verbatim every single thing that parents have to be afraid of. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and it's it's funny because. So much of it is really, really coming true now. Um, you know, it was sort of written a bit as a, as a joke a little bit, but there's just something very dark underneath it. So it's sort of like every parent's worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, our current conditions are making a lot of former jokes a lot edgier <laughs> these days, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's for sure. That's for sure. And you know, the industry is going to change. I mean, we we can already see that that things are changing. And um, you know, I, I've been changing over the years too, in in the way that I've been making my music or making my living or you know, kind of thinking about that. Where with digital streaming and all that kind of thing, like the industry has really changed in in a very big way. And it'll be really interesting to see how things shake out when all of this is over um and i'm hopeful about it and i'm hopeful about it i just have to be hopeful about it yeah i'm trying to be as well i mean we're you know we're kind of learning as a society or at least some people are learning that so much of what we all believed couldn't ever happen is a fiction you know and and so many of the things that we believed we absolutely had to do you know there's of course you have to pay rent of course you have to pay for medical care of course etc 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 that those things are all you know in the face of something like this they are often proven to be absolute fictions you know at, at any time things could be operating differently than they are there's just not the will to do it and so i'm i'm also trying to be hopeful that this will give us a shove in a in a better direction there is literally no data in my life to suggest that that is true i mean based on my entire lived experience uh, of my time my 46 years in america but i am trying to be hopeful that this is enough of an outlier of a situation that you know perhaps better things are coming well when you think about all the things that we're living without i mean you were you were talking about how your 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 partner was pondering cutting your hair and I told you that I cut my son's hair while his hair his barbershop is $35 a haircut right and you start you start thinking about all the little ways that we fritter our money and our time away like all of the junk that we we do and all the events we go to that we don't want to go to and you know you just start to think of like how could I find happiness in this little corner of my my world in this like relatively small <laughs> apartment um, with 36 library books that we took out the day before the library closed. But how, how could we find happiness without being able to order sushi or, you know, like do all those kinds of things. Like, what could we really do? And I, I have to say, although the last four weeks of this lockdown have been the most terrifying, at times, most anxiety-ridden time of my life, I also at times have never felt this peaceful. Um, I've never felt this, like, connected and centered. So I really do think there is some wisdom in all of this, and and I think that there's a a chance for all of us to learn something if we can just listen to what it's trying to tell us. 
Well, I can't think of a more beautiful and uplifting way to uh, bring this conversation to a close. My guest uh, is Brenda Earl Stokes. Her newest album is Solo Sessions Volume 1. And uh, since you can't go to a record store to buy it, you can certainly find it online. And I encourage you to uh, support Brenda and all artists who have seen their their gigs dry up. Uh, You can order from them directly in many cases. Many people have uh, PayPals and Patreons and those kind of things. And whenever you can do that, it's, it's great for you to do it. Brenda, it's been so much fun to talk to you uh especially since you were kind enough to do it twice after the technical difficulties the first time and i thank you and i wish you and your family all the best thank you so much jason thanks for everything you do If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Brenda Earl Stokes. Until next week, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.